This week, we'll learn about a clean tech innovator who sends robots to places where humans can't go. Plus, we'll talk about some other examples of industrial innovation in our city. I'm Karen Unland. And I'm Faiza Ramji. And this is Bloom, the podcast about innovation in Edmonton. Hi, Faiza. Nice to see you again. Talk to you again. Hi, Karen. I have a weird question for you. What's your history with robots? Um, That's a great question. I don't really have a history with robots, um, except for when I used to watch the Jetsons and they had yeah. Rosie. Um, that was one of my favorite robots. And then the other was, uh, you know, I'm getting my backyard uh, landscaped and I was thinking about getting a robot lawnmower similar to the the Roomba my oh. brother was about that. so that I think those are my two recent uh thoughts about robots that's kind of similar to me because I have kind of two associations with that word the kind of humanoid ro- robot that you see in science fiction or those kind of like Roomba like low to the floor ones that I used to do you know, remember that show robot wars do you ever watch that no, so in I the didn't. Late nineties, early two thousands, and it's just engineers would like build these weird little things that with the with destructive tendencies that they would just see who could beat up the other uh, robots and win. So, <laughs> <laughs> kind of fun. Um, I wanted to. This is my segue into a different kind of robot, or way different kind of robot. That's neither humanoid nor uh, bent on destruction, but designed to go to places that are unreachable by humans or too dangerous to venture into. Uh, places like tailings ponds around mines. So those are the kinds of robots that are created by Copperstone Technologies, which is a University of Alberta spin-out that has invented a line of robots called Helix that it makes available to industrial clients to take samples and investigate conditions. So we'll link to this in the show notes so our listeners can know what we're talking about, but maybe if they're not going to click on the link, can you look at CopperstoneTech.com and describe for our listeners what these robots look like they're really cool they look almost like a cross between an atv and a transformer in a way like if you, if you kind of <laughs> broke it down to the most basic version of the of the transformer and they have these let's call them legs but they're not legs but they turn almost like a like a giant kitchenaid mixing bowl kind of mm-hmm. turning through the mud or through i guess the tailings uh, into like really wet or muddy or clay-like surfaces. And they've got a bunch of contraptions hanging from them and wires, which I assume have to do with uh, imaging of some sort. But yeah, that's what they look like. Yeah, and you can tell that they're like, it would be hard for them to get stuck just because of those kind of weird corkscrew type treads. Yeah. Not really treads, but legs yeah <laughs> the mixing bowl the mixing bowl legs that they have on yeah. top of the below the atv yeah 
So I had a chance to talk to Nicholas Almedo about those robots. He's the chief technical officer of Copperstone Technologies, which he co-founded with fellow engineering students, Stephen Dwyer and Jamie Ewan, after they did an internship together in 2014. And when I spoke to Nicholas, he had just returned from Montreal, where he accepted an outstanding entrepreneur award from MyTax, which is like a national innovation organization that solves business challenges uh, with research solutions from post-secondary institutions. Nicholas grew up in Ecuador, and he said that robots weren't really part of his early life, so he wasn't like the kid that was building the robot to do his homework or something like that. But once he got to the University of Alberta, he kind of found himself drawn to the robotic cars that the mechanical engineers were building. He actually switched from bioengineering, which he originally gone into, into to mechanical engineering because he wanted to play with the robots. Um, and then he met his co-founders at a robotics club where they first were working on was aerial robots, so drones. And that was pretty new back then in the uh, mid-2000s. So here's how he describes that. In that group, we were just trying to build the, the first drones to go take pictures in hard to reach places. So this was before you could buy a drone, before you could buy a, a plane, like Octocop or whatever with a camera on. We were like trying to build the very, very beginnings of that. Now we would just go buy one. It would be like a hundred times better than what we built. But back then it was a whole challenge to be able to, to just get a plane or like a, like a, a aerial vehicle to move around like GPS waypoints. That was a whole challenge. We joined those, those type of groups and those clubs because we wanted to build these things that was cutting edge technology and they were trying to do things that just people couldn't. Wow, that's a, that's a really interesting place to start. Um, I can imagine that there wasn't much going on like it. And um, this robotics club just sounds like a really interesting place to test out some new ideas and, and do things that maybe feel a little bit futuristic, but now seem so commonplace. It's kind of like, you know, when you think about all the um, work that's been done here around satellites, it feels like we have very futuristic clubs in general at the University of Alberta. So then yeah. how did they go from being in this club to to thinking about starting a business in something that's so new? So it this experience kind of inspired them to go on to grad school. And then they uh, joined Dr. Mike Lipset's robotics lab in mechanical engineering. And it was Lipset who had this vision to use robots to go to hard to reach areas on the ground, particularly tailings ponds as he works in energy and environmental systems. And so they're in grad school, they're playing around with all this kind of stuff and, and developing all these kinds of things. They, they could have stayed in academia, but it wasn't so much how to build the robot that was interesting to them as how to put it to use. So here's what Nicholas said about that. A lot of the technology to be able to do things, we already knew. Like it wasn't the problem in which we thought that we had to spend years uh, trying to figure out, for example, like a new formula or a new material or something like that to be able to solve the problem. We thought the tools to solve the industry problems were already there. And it was a matter of uh, somebody needs to do it. For sure, there's research problems that would make things better, but we really wanted to get into the field. We wanted to help uh, immediately. We wanted our robots to be deployed and not have people out there collecting samples. That's a really cool story. It, it's 
definitely foreshadowing their entrepreneurial spirit there because I think you know we we see a lot of really interesting innovations coming out of out of universities and post secondaries, but then the always the interesting thing is like how do you actually think about a place where it's going to provide value or or often you see people working the other way around where they've identified a problem they just don't know how to create the solution yeah to 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 be on both sides of that to say okay i i I understand the problem that someone would want to pay for, and also I really want to make that happen. I don't want to just like figure out how to optimize it or tinker with it. Yeah. And also the the fact that they were solving a problem that exists in our province and mm-hmm. in a in a sector where we're we've been leading the way for so long. I'm sure there's lots of desire from energy companies and other folks up in the oil sands who want to actually figure some of this stuff out. Yeah. So they they ended up doing an internship through MyTax. Uh, was not quite related actually to to robots, but they they worked together. And the company that they were working for liked them so much that they wanted to hire them to the project. They wanted to make them employees, but the guys were not interested in being employees. And so they turned that that turned out into be uh, being a key turning point. So here's what uh, Nicholas said about that. And that was one of the first things that we did was a good move. We we said the company, just, we, we just told them that we weren't interested in, in getting hired and being their employees. What we wanted to do was to build our own company and for them to hire our company to do that project. And that's what they did. They, we started Copperstone. They hired Copperstone to finish that project off. And we made a lot of money that then we can invest on robots. Good for them. What a, what a smart way of turning a first em- employer into actually a first customer. Um, mm-hmm. And then using that opportunity to kind of set the foundation. Usually you're looking for a first customer for a while when you, when you start a new product. But how interesting that they already kind of had one and how smart of them to just make that kind of the, the validation that they need for a business. Yeah. Also confidence, right? Like they, yeah. you got to have a fair amount of swagger, I think, to say, no, you're not going to hire. I mean, I'm not your employee. I am your next contractor. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah. I guess if you're selling them something that uh, that nobody else has, you kind of have a little bit of leverage that way. Yes. <laughs> so that's <laughs> a key to, to being able to make this work is invent something cool. But mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, another turning point for Copperstone is when they decided to get some help to run the company. So you've already heard a lot about their entrepreneurial instincts, but that doesn't necessarily know mean that you know how to run a company or sell stuff. And so they uh, they said they they had a lot to learn about business and couldn't learn it fast enough. <laughs> I feel like I'm in that position. Do you feel like you're in that position? <laughs> I feel like we're all always in that position. <laughs> um, anyway, they brought on uh, Craig Milne, who's now their CEO, and that really helped Copperstone take off. So the other thing that was interesting about this conversation was like they've got novel technology. They've invented something. They have patents on some of the things that they've built. But another interesting thing uh, about Copperstone is their business model, which they called uh, robots as a service. That's cool to me. Uh, I asked Nicholas whether this was unusual. I think it's not as unusual now as it, as it was, let's say, five years ago. Over the last 10 years, robots have exponentially increased their capabilities, like delivering pizza, flying vaccines into remote areas, and so on. Initially, everybody thought that 
everybody would want to own a robot, but it didn't happen. Most people just want the service. They just want the, what the robot can do for them. So we had to adapt. We realized that mining companies aren't interested in operating robots, that you know the applications that, that our robots could use are sometimes so specific that even just having the person trained to be able to run a robot, it's a huge investment. And it's a lot simpler for companies to just integrate robot operations if they if their result is just the data or the samples they, they care about. So as we see, for example, now, like even on an autonomous car, maybe a lot of people would want an autonomous car. But from what I what I've read, most of most of what companies are thinking is that nobody is going to own a car. Somebody, some like consortium will own a thousand cars, and then you're just going to call when you need. And the ride-sharing approach on autonomous vehicles might be the future. Like it's not something that we invented or that we are differentiating ourselves because we're the only ones doing robots as a service. I think it's the natural way in which technology is going to be adopted in many, many scenarios. That's such an interesting idea. I love that business model. Um, You don't need a robot the whole time. So what's, you know, to overcome all the expense of buying one or, you know, finding ways that you can finance that, why not just essentially rent one for as long as you need it in a way, right? I guess that's... Mm -hmm. That's kind of the idea is like almost like, you know, the concept behind Zipcar or Uber or whatever is like you've got this expensive piece of equipment that has extra capacity. Why not max out that capacity by essentially selling it in units of time rather than in physical units? So is there like a booking agent? Like how how would it actually work (laughs) if I'm a client of Copperstone Technologies? How do I know that I've always got access to the robot when I need it? Uh. I don't know exactly how the booking part of it, but the, the kind of the, the way that uh, it works is that, so you've got a, like a tailings pond, say, so you are not Isa Ramji. Uh, <laughs> you, <laughs> you, well, maybe someday in the future, but you're like a big company like Suncor or something that has a big tailings ponds. Tailings, just as a reminder, that's the materials that are left over from mining. So once you take out the commercially valuable parts like bitumen or whatever, then you've got the rest. Um, the rest is mixed with water, stored in tailings ponds, and you need to keep that from leaking because it's got arsenic and cyanide and mercury and other gross stuff in it. Um, and also, so that takes monitoring to make sure make sure that things are um, staying put. And then tailings ponds are also part of the reclamation process. So they remove or break down the harmful elements and try to return that to a closer to natural state. And that takes a lot of monitoring and testing. So Companies will have static sensors around, but that's not quite enough, Nicholas said, and that's where they come in, uh, come in handy. The challenge arises when you need information that's in the middle of the pond, let's say. Uh, in some, uh, some areas a long time ago, you would have your team get on a boat and go collect the sample, if possible, assuming it's, 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 a, it's a place where a boat would work. For that, you would need to have like, some rescue equipment ready, several people involved, and so on. Then you're presented with an alternative in which you would still collect your sample, but somebody else will come and send a robot in. Doesn't really, from your perspective, matter how the robot looks like, like what batteries it uses. You just want to make sure that the robot collects the right sample in the right location in a timely fashion. So that's, what, that's where we would come in. We would just 
understand the requirements, understand the terrain, configure the robots that it can do the job, and then go to your site and deploy it. And always people keeping them safe and sure without the need of like sending up the boat. Yeah, this seems like a much better solution to me than putting people in boats and having them uh, row out to the middle of a tailings pond. I mean, looking at the video on the Copperstone website, you can see how thick and harmful and dangerous that could be. And I, I can't imagine that you would want to be fishing those boats out when you're trying mm-hmm. to get those readings from the middle of the water. So that's, I like that idea. And it's, I can see how it would be used even in places beyond oil and gas. Like I think, you know, you mentioned mining earlier and some of those other large process industries, even I'm sure in large scale construction or development, there, there might be some sort of use for that. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that they're going to develop more uses for it as their robots get smarter. So I asked Nicholas how smart the robots are now and how much smarter they can be. And he, he actually can envision a setup that's kind of the way NASA deploys the Mars rover. Like you've got a room full of screens in Houston and people are taking in all kinds of information from the rover. The rover is deploying itself on the planet, right? It's it's like wow. taking a, a series of steps to kind of unfold itself and, and do the stuff, but it's all handled, like observed, it's all observed remotely and, and, monitor, and um, put into action remotely. And then a lot of the, the rover itself kind of in its way knows what to do. Um, that's kind of like what Copperstone wants to do in the future. But the future is that we would most likely operate the robots from, from our office. We would send maybe somebody to deliver it, or we might send you a box in which a button is pressed or something is triggered for the robot to come out of the box and then drive into the pond. And then we would do everything from here. So we wanted to do it so that there is no need for somebody to actually be doing anything. Maybe, obviously, there's going to be a person monitoring that everything is going according to plan, but the robots, well, the robot capabilities will increase to a point so that, like, it would find where the pond is, or that if you point it to a general direction, it will already know where you want the samples, and it will know how to collect them, and then when to deliver it, how to deliver them. Wow, so they want to fully automate this entire process, and and you talked about getting smarter. Do you know, like, is there an AI technology involved here, or how do they... How does Copperstone make this happen and how do they get to the state where everything's fully automated? Yeah. So over time through AI and machine learning, they'll like kind of teach it to know what to do when it's in a certain situation. So Mm. they should be able to kind of like send it in a box and it unpacks itself and then it goes off into the pond and goes and does the stuff and then puts itself away and comes um, is ready to be picked up, I think, is kind of what the vision is. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So in order to be able to do that, they're going to need to generate, uh, like right now where they're at is they generate enough revenue to keep building robots and keep um, serving their current clients. What they need um, investment for probably is to build, continue to build that autonomy to make it so that the so that their their robots are more like the Mars rover. Um, and then they also want to be able to build bigger robots. So what we see in the video on their website is kind of a car-sized uh, thing or maybe even a smaller like ATV-sized thing that goes out on top of the water. There's mm-hmm. some things that, that need monitoring where you actually, it would be better if it could go underground 
And but he said that the force that you need to get underground, you need a robot that's a, the size of a school bus. Um, wow. And that takes a lot more work to to develop. So they are um, open to investment. I didn't, we didn't get into like if they're uh, what stage they're at on on that, but they are uh, willing to entertain some investment in order to get further faster. Well, they should chat with uh, Elon because I think he's <laughs> potentially pulling his, you know, forty three million or whatever out of Twitter. So I think he's That's got right. a couple he's of- That's right. He's got some, some yeah, capital got some to change. just sitting there burning a yeah. hole in his, uh, in his pocket. <laughs> yeah. And this sounds, this sounds like it's right up his alley, self-delivering, <laughs> self-deploying uh, robots who can then put themselves away. It's like a Roomba on steroids or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also, of course, because this is a podcast about innovation in Edmonton, I asked Nicholas, uh, what Edmonton, what, what is it about Edmonton that has made this a good place to build Copperstone technologies? And uh, this is what he said. I think a lot of it has to do with the talent that we find around, like coming out of U of A, uh, the proximity to a lot of the sites. We were close to all the mines in BC, we're close to the Fort McMurray area. And uh, we're actually not that far from a lot of the big mining hubs in the US. So we're pretty central. Actually, like all of the Eastern Canada is accessible that way. So like we're, we're very in the middle of being able to deploy within a couple of days to the centers of mining in North America. Edmonton is also like a great place for all of us to live. A lot of the recent hires we've had like have been very happy to move to Edmonton too. Yeah, Edmonton is a really strategically placed uh, city for a lot of a lot of people that are working on things in in aerospace, people that are working on things uh, that are, you know, for the oil sands or for mining. And I definitely think it's a great place to live too. But I also think that, you know, I was talking to somebody from ACAMP a long time ago, and they said, one of the things about building some of this technology in Edmonton is that we also have very cold climate and very extreme climate in both directions, which Mm -hmm. makes it a better place to test technology that has to stand up in certain climate conditions. And that, you know, if you build something in the middle of California, and then you're trying to deploy it in, in really cold places, you may not actually be able to test in the real world how it's going to react. So I, I wonder if that's um, that's useful to Copperstone as well. I could imagine that mm. they're in some pretty questionable terrain. So that's probably interesting to see how they build something that's hardy enough to actually withstand that. Yeah. And we also, like, we just often lament, like, oh, we're so far away from everything. Well, being far away from a lot of other urban centers is not necessarily a bad thing if you're in this line of business. Mm-hmm, exactly. And being so close to the university, like, like Nicholas said, you're just kind of getting this constant loop of, you know, talent, but then they can work somewhere nearby and then hopefully pursue more of their own entrepreneurial ventures and then hire more people out of universities and you kind of just keep the wheel turning. So I think that's, mm-hmm. um, that's really great. Mm-hmm. So what's next for Copperstone? Sounds like they're obviously, they have big ambitions, but what's, uh, what's next for them in the immediate future? Yeah, so they're they're doing a lot of hiring um, of people, both to kind of take care of the robots and also to build them. And they're also um, planning to move into South America, where there's lots of mines and lots of uh, challenging terrain to handle. As they make those hires, they have diversity in mind. Uh, so we'll link in the show notes to 
this Women Hack event that Copperstone is hosting uh, at the end of June to connect employers, including themselves, with talented women in tech. And I asked Nicholas about that. I'm looking for people that bring things that are different to the team. Like uh, we're, we're not interested in hiring duplicates of what we already have. And any opportunity that we can get ourselves involved in that would expose Copperstone to as various people as we can, we think is a, it's an opportunity very important and very, very, very crucial for us. So this is just one of them. And we will benefit significantly from meeting people that we might not usually have a chance to meet. I love that. I think that's so great that they're thinking about diversity and, and how that can, you know, that can actually help make them a stronger company by bringing these types of diverse thinking. Um, and so good for them for, for putting on an event like that. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. He also said it was interesting that they've had a lot more luck uh, attracting people to Edmonton than hiring locally as far as the, the kinds of whatever they're looking for. And so he's hoping that having this local event will help alert people who have the kind of experience that they're looking for to, to this opportunity. Uh, so then I asked Nicholas what advice he would have for an engineering student who might be thinking of following a similar path. And one of the pieces of advice he had uh, is to always have a side project. And he, he said he asks in interviews, what have you built that wasn't for school or work? Which I love. I think I'm going to steal that because it's so revealing, right? About yeah. like as a, as a, an interviewer, I, it helps me understand kind of like what what else do you do? And also, do you love this enough to do it in, for free in your spare time? Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but it also helps the student themselves kind of understand what they're passionate about because that was kind of key for him. Um. His other piece of advice was to not be afraid to go to grad school, which is interesting. It's maybe not what you would necessarily hear from uh, an entrepreneur. Uh, he has a PhD. He went to school for a really long time, but he says he doesn't regret it because academia gave him time to think, which is rare once you're out in the workforce, uh, but is really uh, crucial to the creativity that he's needed and his team is needed to, to make Copperstone a success. So here's what he said about that. The time that I spent in the lab, just thinking, tinkering, reading, reading about the latest research and so on. Although it didn't feel that I was producing a lot for a long time, I think it, it, it does change you. It does change you. Even me, I assume it changed how your brain works and then it might prepare you more for the future. Like who knows? But I really enjoyed it. So I would highly recommend always seeking uh, further studies. Yeah. You know, it's it, someone once said to me that um, you go to university to learn how to learn. And um, I think the timing, you know, when you're out of school, you do have less time on your hands. But I also think that the time you take to mature while you're in school, it, you know, your perspective changes so much. And I think even just the way you think about things, like I think about me now, as opposed to me at 18, when I started university and how differently I would approach learning or um, being in school and how I would spend my time. And so I think the longer you stay in school, the more you can take advantage of a little bit of that. And, and, and I wonder if that uh, influenced their team in hiring, you know, specialists for e each part of the business, like even hiring Craig to actually run the business side, if Nicholas and his co-founders were 
more focused on the technology or the the underlying um, innovation there. They need it's probably help them recognize what skills they have and what skills they don't have and how they can uh, build around that. Yeah, I think so too. And, and the thing about uh, university is it puts you in touch with a bunch of people that you might not otherwise have met. And so it's kind of like a, a natural Petri dish for making those connections <laughs> and collisions that leads to good stuff. I know that that's been the basis of everything for me from my marriage to my business. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about some uh, other kinds of industrial innovation. Bloom is brought to you by Innovate Edmonton. Here's a message from our sponsor. Innovate Edmonton, we are elevating our city as a global capital of innovation, a thriving center of inspiration, ingenuity, and growth. Our role is to empower you as local innovators, connecting you to capital and customers, helping you to achieve your goals and make a global impact. We're supporting career-defining jobs for a rapidly changing world where companies, consumers, and investors are looking for a triple bottom line of people, planet, and prosperity. When global investment looks at Edmonton, we can demonstrate an innovation ecosystem working in harmony with healthy access to capital, collaborative communities, and a competitive spirit. Go to innovateedmonton.com today to learn how to accelerate your business. This episode of Bloom is also brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. Even if you're a busy business owner with more meetings than hours in a day, you are calm and collected when your group benefit plan is taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross. Your employees can manage their own health, dental, life, and disability coverage online, anytime on any device, making it easier for them and for you. To learn more and explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. All right. So as we heard from Nicholas Almedo, a lot of innovation has been born in labs at the University of Alberta. And I noticed a couple of examples of that among the finalists for Startup TNT's Investment Summit 5, which, as we mentioned a few times, is coming up on uh, June 23rd. That's right. One of the Edmonton companies pitching at the finale is Zero Point Cryogenics, uh, and they manufacture a really unique refrigeration device that takes liquid helium and uses it to cool particles in quantum systems uh, that support quantum computing. And uh, Mm. I don't know what any of that means. So (laughs) all I think about is liquid helium is, uh, you know, when when people come to your school and they they use liquid nitrogen to make ice cream, that's like the, the closest thing I can think of. Yeah, I assume it's similar. I also don't know very much about it, but um, I looked it up. So quantum computing harnesses the laws of quantum mechanics to solve problems that are too complex for classical computers. I still don't quite understand what that means, but I assume it's happening like at a subatomic level and you need lots of coldness for that to happen. 
and people are very excited about the potential for quantum uh, computing to uh, diversify Alberta's economy. The province just announced $23 million for a hub called Quantum City that'll be housed at the University of Calgary, but have participation from the U of A and the University of Lethbridge. So they are um, putting their money with, or putting our money, I guess, where <laughs> their mouth is uh, on quantum possibilities. Yeah, and I guess, you know, the Copperstone um, story that we just talked about also shows how much innovation is taking place in data collection in these industrial settings and probably helps help support what the, the province is thinking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a couple of other examples from the among the startup TNT finalists that I was noticing. One is Element 4, and they produce autonomous energy independent modular sensor technology to detect and uh, like the things that they make detect like location, temperature, acceleration, air quality, stuff like that. And they're doing it in an environmentally friendly way. So this is part of the Internet of Things, uh, part of like gathering information around us, which has initially a lot of heavy duty industrial uses probably useful for the rest of us eventually as it trickles down too. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, another one is Correct AI, uh, and they develop industrial robotics and artificial intelligence to focus on safety in industrial work sites. And I had a chance to um, meet the founder at InVentures mm -hmm. last week. And, um, you know, he was mentioning that obviously safety is a really big concern in these industrial work sites. And I know they've already got some traction from many countries around the world, which, uh, which is exciting for them. Yeah. Until that moment where, when Nicholas's robots are doing the whole thing from beginning <laughs> to end, we're going to have people on site and we need to keep them safe. So it's interesting to, to see how uh, correct AI is, is helping make that happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, lots of interesting innovation happening in the industrial world. Uh, it's not all apps and SaaS when we're talking about innovation. Um, and we'll link to all that information in the show notes. Well, that's it for this week. If you haven't already, hit subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes of Bloom. And if you like this episode, share it with a friend. Bloom is produced by Taproot Edmonton with editing by Castria. Our music is by Dave on Beaker and our cover art is by Vicky Rusinski. Bye.